God, as we turn to your word this morning, I just pray that you would guide us and that you would help me. Um, our endeavor here at True Life is to rightly and correctly, when it says divide the word of truth, it's talking about teaching it, explaining it, interpreting it. God, we don't want to lead anybody astray in how we present your word. Your word is truth. And God, your son, he's life, eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so today, God, as we turn to your word, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be the voice that speaks to our head and to our heart. And God, that you would illuminate your word to bring understanding and application to our lives. In all of this, may you be glorified and may we draw closer to you. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been talking a little bit about healing. A lot of times when we talk about healing, people have that idea of physical healing. And when we talked about what does the Bible say about healing, physical healing, spiritual, mental, emotional, social, relational, Jesus did it. God does it. In fact, there are many, many examples and stories of how God has miraculously healed even today. But not every bodily sick person is healed physically here and now. Jesus didn't heal every physically sick person that lived on planet Earth when he came. He healed those he did. But when it comes to healing, the Bible has quite a bit to say about it. And some of what the Bible says about healing may or may not have been explained or interpreted correctly. But here's an example, Wanda Humes. Wanda Humes, a very sweet Christian lady that unfortunately was a victim of a car accident. Some of you have been in car accidents before. And you know the damage or the injury that can happen. Dr. Billy Holland writes this on March 4th, 2022, so just a year ago. He helps manage a food distribution ministry, so they bring in the food much like Helping Hands does, and then they distribute it every week to families who are in need. He said the cervical vertebrae in her neck were damaged and the muscles and tendons have been pulling her chin down to her chest since the accident. This has caused her head to point directly to the ground without being able to lift it. Any attempt to raise her head was excruciating. To look at others squarely, not being able to look directly when other people are talking to her. People are constantly criticizing her for not looking at them when they're talking to her. I have felt compassion for her and occasionally I will gather the team around her to pray that God would heal her. On Friday afternoon, February 25th, 2022, the trailer had just been unloaded and we were loading our vehicles to give the food away. When suddenly I felt compelled to gather the, to gather the two team members that were still there to pray for Wanda again. I laid hands on her along with Lois Gothier and Norman Klein and starting, started asking Jesus to touch her neck. I said, I believe that God can straighten bones, muscles and tendons, and he is our provider and our healer. I was pleading the blood of Jesus over her while the, these two witnesses were agreeing and together we sealed this request in the name of Jesus. We left and went separate ways with the food. 15 minutes later, I received a call. Lois and Wanda had pulled over on the side of the road shouting praise God into the phone saying that Wanda's neck had suddenly straightened up for the first time in two years. Amen. She could raise her head and see the sky like it was before the accident. We came back together about an hour later and were rejoicing when we saw her neck had been completely healed by the love and mercy of Christ. Amen. That was a praise. It was a praise that Wanda was healed. That, by the way, I did the research, and that's the guy who prayed, led the ministry, and that's the lady who was healed. A picture. This is one of many, though, reported healings and miracles done by God in response to prayer. And a few weeks ago, I raised this question What has been your experience with miraculous, supernatural, physical healing? Can you think of stories or examples or can you remember times where you yourself have prayed, whether or not you were 
physically healed than Anel. At our Alpha retreat just a few weeks ago, Nora told a story. Some of you might remember the, the story about she had a friend who broke her foot and the friend was on her way and uh, to see Nora, but had to go to the doctor and the doctor x-rayed it. Friend called Nora to say, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna be able to make it. Uh, they had planned to do something together. Um, Nora prayed over the phone, asking God to heal her friend. Later on, when her friend went back to the doctor for a second x-ray, a second visit, um, when they examined her foot and x-rayed it again, it was completely healed. No other explanation that they can think of except a miraculous answer to prayer. And, and so there have been times where people have prayed and they've been supernaturally, miraculously healed. And there have been other times where people have prayed for complete physical and bodily healing and God has chosen to say, not here, not now, for the believer in eternity. Or sometimes God says, wait. I remember the lady that was part of our church named Laura and she had cancer. Um, we prayed and prayed and prayed asking God to heal her. And we could truly look back and say that there were several small miracles along the way. A lot of those miracles took place in the conversations she had with her family or in an extension of life that it, where it was extended weeks or days instead of completely healed. But ultimately she died. She passed away of the cancer. Rex Rice shared a story a couple Sundays ago about four climbers, they got lost on the mountain and people gathered together and they prayed. They prayed for their search and rescue, but in the end, these four men died. And it was a, a, a gentleman that came up to one of the fathers and said, well, I guess God didn't answer your prayers. And the father, a wise man said, well, he did. And the answer was no. So when we pray, God may say yes. He may say no. He may say, wait, he might just say, I've got something better for you. Ultimately, though, our job is to trust him and many things in this life, in this world will not make sense this side of eternity. Later on, maybe it will, but God always answers our prayers. Yes, no, wait, or something better. And I believe this, that sometimes the miracle, it's not in the healing, but in what God does in the midst of our pain. And what God does, it's part of the journey that he wants to lead us through. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, that ultimately we must trust him. I like what C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pain. We spend a lot of time in life working on life preservation. How long can we live? Oftentimes it's not how long we live, but how we live that counts. It's important to make the most of every day, most, the most of the life God has given us. So we looked at stories in the Bible, and one of my favorites is the story of Naaman. Naaman um, in first King, second Kings, excuse me, chapter five in verse one, Naaman is the commander of the army of Aram. Uh, that would be modern, someplace in modern day Syria today. He, he, he comes down with leprosy. I don't know how you come down with leprosy yet, but he, is, he has leprosy. And, and so he's got pus oozing out of these sores all over his body and leprosy wasn't it wasn't a death sentence necessarily, but it was a life sentence. It was incurable. Nobody wanted to be around somebody with leprosy. It would separate you, ostracize you from outside the camp, and it would lead to incredible suffering in its worst extremes. Well, there was a servant girl who had been taken captive. This, the servant girl had actually been taken captive in Israel and was taken to Naaman's house where she served Naaman's wife. This servant girl who had been taken captive had compassion on Naaman. That's one of the beautiful parts of the story. And, and she recommends to her mistress in verse three, she says, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. 
who she has in mind is Elijah. But look at uh, verse 6 of 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman went to his boss, the king, and the king says, Hey, I'll write a letter to the king of Israel. That'll, that'll do the trick. The letter that he took to, to the king of Israel read, With this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? It reminds me of the other day. And when I say the other day, it might be five years ago or 10 or 20 or just a few weeks ago or a few days. But I, I just finished visiting a, uh, some friends and I get this text. The text says, you want to bring some anointing oil to Kaiser Hospital, room such and such? And I was, re I was ready to get in the car, drive home. I promised the family I'm cooking dinner tonight. We're going to have steak. Uh, it was the end of my day and I get a text. Do I want to bring anointing oil to Kaiser? Uh, is that a yes or no question? So I called my wife, I consulted with her and her wisdom, she said, you need to go. So I went home, picked up the oil, went to the hospital. But as I was driving, I felt kind of like the king of Israel. What do they expect me to do? Am I supposed to pull out this oil, wave a magic wand, say a few words, and all of a sudden there's going to be instantaneous healing? My mind was surmising and assessing the physical situation of what I was going to be dealing with and encountering. And, 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 and then in the back of my mind, it's like, okay, God, what are you going to do? Well, listen, we can have full faith and trust and confidence in God. And it's really an honor and a privilege when somebody calls you and asks you to come and to pray. But listen, this is another side of it. Many people have become angry, discouraged, disappointed, and even bitter at God when what they wish for, what they ask for, doesn't come true. When what they pray for doesn't happen the way they want it to be. Sometimes they blamed it on the person who's praying. Other times the person who is sick has been blamed for not having enough faith. Maybe it was a preacher who prayed that didn't have enough faith, but this can be a delicate situation. And sometimes what God wants to do when we pray for healing may not be the obvious. We might pray for physical healing, but God has in mind something more. Don't get me wrong. God cares about our physical condition, but he's concerned about our spiritual condition even more. We're concerned with the here and now. God is more concerned about the eternal. God works miracles. But our sovereign God does not always choose to heal here and now. King Hezekiah, another example, 2 Kings chapter 20. Got sick, he prayed, God added 15 years to his life. But it's not just about the extension of time. In those 15 years, he kind of squandered the wealth of the nation of Israel by inviting the Babylonian envoys to see the great wealth of the temple, which kind of violated a standard of God in the end. Babylon, the Babylonians did come back and they invaded and they took that wealth, having seen it and known about it and known where it was. It's not just about the extension of time. It's what we do with it. And even then, as mere mortals, even Naaman, who was cured of his leprosy, Hezekiah, who was added 15 years, even then they still eventually died. The greater work God wants to do, I believe, is spiritual. Here's another point I want to make in preference to the text we're going to talk about. Jesus made it clear that not all sickness, not all disability, not all infirmity is a result of personal sin. In the New Testament, Religious leaders often wanted to peg it on the person who is sick or ill or born with something. Well, who sinned here? And a prime example is in John chapter 9. Religious leaders come to Jesus and, and it was a man born blind. And it says here, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Uh, correction, I talked about the religious leaders. This one's his disciples. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. 
Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life and immediately he healed him. But not all sickness is the result of sin. Flip side, the Apostle Paul gives us indication in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 27 to 30 that some sickness can be the result of sin. In the context of this, he's talking about the Lord's Supper and taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But the greater extended context pertains to relationships and how we treat one another and living in a right relationship with God, a proper respect of God, a proper recognition of God. There were divisions in the church. There was disorderliness in the church. There was a lack of reverence in the church. There was drunkenness in the church. There were derogatory and despicable behaviors occurring in the church. And Paul says here, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is another word for dying. Bible says in Hebrews, the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And sometimes God's discipline can come in the form of sickness. Not always. We've talked about passages that have been taken out of context by those who claim to be faith healers, for example, or who advocate kind of a name it and claim it. Or if you just have enough faith or just say the word when it comes to physical healing. And in context, just remember that the healings in the Bible, the healings performed by Jesus, they were sudden and instantaneous, not gradual. They were perfect and complete, not partial. They were the work of God, not generated by the hype of man. And they were permanent, not temporary. You'll hear or see those who claim to be healers or faith healers. And sometimes what you see is not consistent with what you find in God's word. Well, there's some passages that some people think guarantee physical healing or a complete bodily healing here and now, almost like a, a promise or a magical formula. I am concerned that some Christians are looking for almost a Harry Potter like approach that you just say these words or this incantation or have this vial of oil and it's going to be those things that have this miraculous power. You just kind of wave it around like a magic wand guaranteeing to invoke healing. But oftentimes the passages they use are taken away out of their proper context or application. For example, 3 John 1 verse 2. I, when, when I heard this was used as a faith healing type passage, I, frankly, I just laughed. Um, when I heard this verse was being used as a promise to guarantee physical healing, uh, the Apostle John writes, Dear friend, introduction to the book. And excuse me, that is 3 John 1 and 2, not 1st. Typo. It says, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. I can't believe people would use that as a promise as opposed to just a, a greeting. This is a greeting, a salutation, a, a welcome to an opening letter. It's John's prayer, not God's promise. It's something we would hope for and wish for on all people. How are you doing? I hope you're doing good. I hope you're... Enjoying good health and that all is going well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. There's an emphasis there on the spiritual. Some people have waved this around like a holy prayer rag, though. Name it and claim it. God wants you to be healthy, prosperous, wealthy, successful. Word, word of faith. As if the majority of our lives are to be wrapped up in the physical state of things. That's not the point. This is just a greeting. It's a welcome that all of us should use in our letters or a thank you card. Hey, thanks. I hope you're doing well. Good health. Even as your soul is going along well. 
Here's another passage, and this one, the deeper we go in these texts, we're going to look at John, then we're going to look at James chapter 5 this morning. Each one gets a little deeper in my mind. This passage, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. I want you to picture this because we're going to be approaching Good Friday. We're going to be approaching Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is in his, the upper room with his disciples. The Last Supper, he's just washed his disciples' feet. He's just broken bread and he sent Judas on his way. He's giving them his final instructions. And in verse 12 of chapter 14, Jesus says this. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. I mean, if you just stop right there, if you just pulled those one or two verses out of context, you could justify and name it or claim it gospel. You know, you may ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. Shazam! Bang! Pow! Be healed! Taken verbatim out of context, this would sound like we could invoke the name of Jesus, ask him for anything and get everything we want. But is that what this is saying? Looking, we talked a few weeks ago about a biblical hermeneutic. What's a hermeneutic? It's the proper interpretation of scripture based on the historical context, the cultural context, the grammatical or the literary context, the way words were used or figures of speech, forms of speech. Biblical and theological context, including everything else that the Bible has to say about the topic. So if you want to talk about prayer, my, my dad, Pastor Rod, says this so well. If you want to look at a topic in Scripture, you've got to look at what the entire content of Scripture has to say about it, not just one verse. Who's John saying this to? Or Jesus, excuse me. Who, who's Jesus saying? Who's saying this? It's Jesus. Who is it said to? It's said to the 11 disciples in the upper room. What's the context? Jesus' final instructions. What's the promise, if any? And who is it given to and what conditions apply? What, if any, principles can be found in this passage that you and I can, can take and use and apply in our lives? And what does all of Scripture say about this topic? That's part of this biblical hermeneutic. You've got to look at all those things to get an accurate understanding of Scripture. So again, Jesus is talking to his disciples up a room. He tells them he's going away, but he's going to come back someday to be with them. That's in John chapter 14, verse 1. Thomas expresses doubt. Jesus, he says, well, how do we know the way where you're going? And Jesus comes back in John 14, 6, and this is the famous passage. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one cometh to the Father but by me. Well, then Philip has a question. Philip says, well, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answers it in verse 9. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, now is Jesus being literal there or is he being... Is he speaking in hyperbole? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Does that mean that Jesus is saying he is the Father? Well, not when you compare it to John chapter 118. John chapter 118, the same book, it says this. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. What's that saying? No one has ever seen God, the Father. But God, the one and only, the Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. When Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What's he saying there? Jesus is using hyperbole in that passage. He's not speaking literally in verse 9. We'll explain that more later. When he explains it in verse 10, where he says, Don't you know and believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me. He's not saying he is the Father because he's the Son. But it's the Father living in him as a pure reflection of the Father. 
John chapter 14, verse 20 says this. On that day, you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. See, if we fast forward, what Jesus is talking about in the full context is he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the advocate. I'm not going to disband you as a group as I go to the cross and as I die for the sins of the world, as I suffer and die and rise again. I'm not going to disband the group. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit instead. He's not going to leave them like orphans. And he will continue his work and his ministry through them. So it brings more context to this idea of John chapter 14, where he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father can be glorified. I'm going away. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. But there's more. John chapter 14, verses 16 to 21. If you love me, you will keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you to be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot see accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him and he lives in you for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Christ dwells within us through this dynamic relationship and through the Holy Spirit. Jesus was being hyperbolic. He was speaking in hyperbole when he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Fast forward again then to John chapter 15. Jesus starts out by saying, I'm the vine. My father is the gardener. And he talks about cutting and pruning and remaining in the vine. In verse five, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. For you. There are some conditions attached to these verses in John chapter 14 and in John chapter 15. And for, for years and years, though, these verses have been kind of waved around like a carte blanche promise that God will do what you want if you just do, you know, follow this formula. Um, some, including myself as Christians, have wrestled with, okay, what is the secret to getting what you want as a follower of Christ? What's the secret to God answering the prayers in my direction? What's the formula? Some have distorted these verses to say, if you believe it, you'll receive it. And if you don't receive it, it means you don't have enough faith. So the bottom line here, Jesus is going away. The Father is going to send the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit will continue his ministry in them and through them. And greater things will be done. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the 11 in the upper room at this time. But these passages apply to all believers later on. Essentially, though, this passage is not talking directly about physical healing. It's talking about God working through them. And do you realize that there were more recorded salvation experiences on the day of Pentecost during all of, than, than there were during all of Christ's entire earthly ministry? There are more salvations on the day of Pentecost that were recorded than all of Christ's ministry on earth. And do you remember that Jesus' disciples did in fact perform miracles and healings and cast out demons and, and did the works that Jesus had been doing just as he promised? And more than that, they were his witnesses around the world. That's what Jesus is getting at in this passage. But this idea of ask whatever you wish in my name, Jesus repeats that phrase, John 15, verse 7, John 15, verse 16, John 16, verse 23 to 24, and verse 26. The apostle is going to repeat it in 1 John 5, 14 through 15. Ask whatever you will. In John chapter 15, though, the context is abiding in him and bearing spiritual fruit. Ask whatever you will, 
is connected directly with spiritual fruit in our lives. John chapter 16, he's going to be with them. He's not leaving them as orphans and he's instilling with them this confidence in God that the father is in him and his disciples are in if, if, if the Father is in Jesus and if the disciples are in Jesus, so He is in them, there's this dynamic connection of trust and confidence in God to do His work. So let's go back to John 14. It says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Is there any condition applied? I'll do whatever you ask in my name. Jesus is telling his disciples they have to do it in Jesus' name. He's not talking here about tacking on, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of every prayer we pray. Not what it means, although that's not a bad thing to do. But in Jesus' name is much more than that. To pray in Jesus' name is basically representing Jesus' authority as if you are standing in his place. He's going into heaven. The Holy Spirit's coming into your life and you're going into the world. And if you do these things in my name, to do it in Jesus name and to ask in Jesus's name means that whatever you pray for needs to be consistent with his wisdom. I got that from my dad. Consistent with his purpose, consistent with his character, consistent with his person and consistent with the will of God. First John chapter five, verse 14 to 15, the apostle John writing here, Jesus has ascended into heaven. John comes back and he says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And we know that, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. It's gotta be according to his will. But here's another cool thing. It's not meant to be a trick. It's not meant to be a catch. This very night that Jesus was giving his disciples the instruction in John chapter 14, just a few moments later, he would make, he would leave the upper room with them. He'd take the three later on and say, you guys stay here. I'm going to go a little further. And he pleaded with the father. He pleaded with the father in Mark chapter 14. You'll also find this in Matthew and in Luke. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, this hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not as I will, but what you will. See, even Jesus, being perfect and having all wisdom and being the one and only begotten Son of God, as he pleaded with the Father, ask whatever you will. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. And the Father said, no. You're going to go through with this. God was not willing to prevent Jesus from going to the cross for you and me. God said no to that prayer. So John chapter 14 is not a carte blanche guarantee for physical healing any more than Jesus' prayer in Mark chapter 14, just moments later, to, in, after delivering the upper room discourse to his disciples, prevented him from going to the cross. Sometimes God allows us to experience suffering and pain and even death. But we should pray. We should have confidence in approaching the God, knowing that if he hears us, we ask anything according to his will. There's another point that we get from John chapter 14, and that was this. So that the father may be glorified in the son. We need to pray when we pray and ask God that he would be glorified. That, Lord, I'm asking you for this and I pray that you would receive glory. But sometimes they'll say, no, I've got a different plan. But we should have confidence in approaching God and we should trust his final decision. We should end our prayer as Jesus did. Thy will be done. The Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should trust God with his will. We should pray for physical healing, knowing that God does have the power and can do that. At the end of the day, we need to commit that to God, then entrust him with it. Because sometimes greater than spiritual healing is greater than physical healing is that spiritual healing. 
he wants to do in our heart and the spiritual fruit he wants to produce in our lives the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness self-control and salvation which is more important to have your life extended 15 years and die and go to hell or or to be saved and live forever with him throughout eternity what does God want to do and that brings us to our final passage this morning John MacArthur has an excellent sermon on this and it's something that I'll upload and post online to our Facebook page you guys can listen to that and I'm borrowing a little bit from him and a little bit from somebody else and a little bit from some books and, and, and commentaries I studied but this is a, a popular passage and this is one of the main ones that some Christians use to say God heals here and now and here's how to get that done James chapter 5 13 to 20 is anyone in, among you in trouble let them pray is anyone happy let them sing songs of praise if anyone is anyone among you sick let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well the Lord will raise them up if they have sinned they will be forgiven therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective can you see from that why you get that idea if we just pray over them if we call the elders of the church if we anoint oil they will be healed there's ways to construe that passage that way then he continues this is the end of the book we have a few more verses and then the whole book is done he, he writes Elijah was a human being even as we are he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops my brothers and sisters if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. What's this passage about? I mean, it's certainly about prayer because you'll find prayer in almost every verse in the first few. Who's writing this? Who's it written to? What's the context? What's the promise of any? Who is it given to and what conditions apply? What if any principles can be found in this passage? Because James is written by the half-brother of Jesus, a leader in the early Jerusalem church. He presided over the Jerusalem council. He was an important person. He didn't really come to believe in Jesus till after Jesus rose again. During Jesus' earthly ministry, James was a bit skeptical. And afterwards, he became convinced. When he writes the book, he writes in James chapter 1, verse 1, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So who's he writing to? He's writing to Jewish believers who are scattered from Jerusalem in the diaspora or the persecution. And this was the persecution that happened in Acts chapter 7. When Stephen was stoned, they threw rocks at him to put him to death. Saul was there holding his, the cloaks of the people who were persecuting Stephen and other Christians. The, so this is written to Jewish ex exiles scattered all over. And there's been this great persecution that has gone on all across that part of the world in that time. So these Christians, their lives have been uprooted. They're exiled in foreign lands. They've endured trials and testings and tribulations. And that's why if you started chapter one, consider it pure joy, my, my brethren. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. When I read James, and it's one of my favorite books to, as kind of a, a guidebook for, for a newer believer, giving instructions how to live out the Christian life. But do you realize the church had just started to blossom in Jerusalem before it got scattered? And now these people have endured suffering and persecution and trial and oppression and temptation. And if you read the book of James, you'll find that within that book, some were considering abandoning the faith. Is this really worth it? Maybe I should just cash in, throw in the towel and give up. 
When we look at James chapter 5, verse 13, though, there's something more that I want you to see here. It says, if any of you in trouble, he should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Observation one. This passage is written in the context of the church. This is written to believers who are connected to a caring Christian community. At least they should be. If any among you, it's talking to believers. And there's a structured, organized body with elders. There's a structure. The passage assumes that the believer is living out their faith in community. And, and, and so with that in mind, James gives this type of progression. First, there's this individual response. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. That trouble could be persecution. That trouble could be oppression. It could be discouragement. It could be weariness. In fact, the word he uses there in the Greek, keopekthe. Uh, I didn't say that right. Keikopathe. Trouble or hardship. If it is any of you experiencing trouble or hardship, you should pray. This applies to you and I. When we go through tough times, many of us know it. We, we need to pray. Get, that should be the first thing we do, not the last thing we do. Is anyone happy? The Greek there means being cheerful. If you're upbeat, if things are going well, you should sing songs of praise. Let the Lord know your gratitude. John MacArthur refers to this as the happy soul versus the suffering soul. And prayer has a way of bringing spiritual comfort to our problems, just as, just as praise has a way of elevating our situation from the humanly to the heavenly. We praise God. It brings it to the heavenly. We're glorifying Him and praising Him for who He is. To sing praises here in this passage comes from the Greek word palato, which points back, I'm sorry, I'm butchering this, solato, which points back to the Psalms. Verse 14, is any among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So there's the individual response, but now there's the elders response. Is any among you sick? And James could have used a different Greek word in this passage that per pertain more strictly to physical sickness, illness, disease, infirmity in that way. But he uses the word asthenio. In Greek, asthenio means weak, feeble, and powerless. It can refer to sickness or disease, but it's talking more about Spiritual things, a spiritual weakness, discouragement, defeat. These people have been scattered. They've been beaten up. They're facing oppression, persecution, temptation in all these ways. Many of them have become weary in their faith, weighed down, discouraged to the point. I don't know if you guys have ever been there. Have you ever been so beaten down, so worn out, so discouraged spiritually, mentally, emotionally in every way that you don't even know how to pray? You don't even know what to say. And you're at the point of giving up. You're so spiritually weak. And what James says here is when you're spiritually weak at this level, you reach out to the spiritually strong. You call on the elders of the church and have them come and pray over you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. It's probably why I spent so much time on John chapter 14 in Jesus's name, in the name of the Lord, the power that's in Jesus's name. But the word there for sick means to be weak and feeble. And powerless. And here's something that my dad has said that I have experienced and that John MacArthur alluded to. You can get 20 commentaries on this passage. 18 of them will say the same thing. Maybe only one or two will say something different. And sometimes it's that one or two that have the better insight. John MacArthur tells a story. He, he read 15 commentaries on this text and one book. All essentially said the same thing, but something was was missing. It wasn't adding up. It didn't make sense. You see, we go from James chapter one all the way to, to this part of chapter five. Nothing in the book says anything about physical sickness and disease and illness and infirmity. Everything it says leading up to that is talking about the spiritual condition of this weary, worn out people and their need to be strengthened and to be solid with the foundation for life in Christ. 
Some of the lyrics of these commentaries, you can look at English Bible translations, I did, and all of them say, is anyone among you sick? And except for one, the Tyndale Bible of 1526, we're talking the 16th century, translates James 5.14 this, if, if any be defeated among you, let him call for the elders of the congregation and let them pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's what it says, even though it looks like a foreign language. But to be sick is more appropriately talking about the discouraged, the defeated, the spiritually worn out, the spiritually weary. That fits the context. And this does not prevent praying over those who are physically sick, but I, I believe it has something broader in mind. God cares about the whole person mentally and emotionally and relationally, socially, spiritually. I believe those are the people that James primarily has in mind. The Apostle Paul uses the same word, um, asthenio, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 19, when, when he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am asthenio, I am strong. It's, it's spiritually weak in the midst of persecution and suffering. This passage, again, assumes the believers living out their faith in the context of a community. Those are, who are part of a church. Oftentimes as pastors, as people, we get called to pray for those outside of the church. And we should always do that. We should pray for their healing. And we should pray that they would know God. And that he would be real and alive and powerful in their life. And that through, even through this trial, they would come to a deeper relationship with him. But James is talking about inside the church. And he says, if anyone among you is sick, let them call the elders. The sick person is the one who's supposed to call the elders of the church. A lot of times in ministry, and this can be tricky for, for pastors, because oftentimes pastors are expected to have like a, a mental telepathy, a spiritual telepathy, to know exactly what's going on in your life, in your home, in your, in your body, in your situation. Let them call the elders of the church, and the elders is plural. It's almost like the elders of, of True Life. Now we need to get this little ambulance and you guys should dial 911 or 199 whenever you face a spiritual crisis in your life, an emergency. And we should be showing up and praying at your house. But you've got to call us according to this passage. Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. Yes. And anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Let's talk about the oil. The oil in the Bible was often used for the act of anointing or consecrating or you're anointing them to, to designate them to a task or to service. We're going to set them apart by anointing them with oil. That was one use for oil. Oil was also used, according to some, as a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so it's almost like inviting the Holy Spirit through the anointing of oil. That's another application that people have applied James chooses to use the Greek word Aleppo instead of cryo. And cryo was used in scripture for ceremonial anointing. Aleppo would be used to rub, to crush over, and to rub all over the body. He's saying, anoint with oil, you're going to rub this oil all over the body. How does that compare to usually be a little dabble, do you? You know, you just put a, some of the common practice with the oil does not do that. And so you have to consider in, in Jesus's day and in, in the in the ancient East, you know, they, there'd be a long, they'd be walking these long, dusty roads and they'd come in the house. Sometimes they would wash your feet with water. They would anoint your hair with oil. It was to soothe. It was to refresh. To, to, to rejuvenate, to, to nourish the, the hands, the feet would become cracked. They would rub oil. They would massage oil into the parts of your body to bring healing and soothing. In ancient Eastern culture, oil was considered to have healing properties and was used for medicinal purposes. It was like medication to anoint with oil. He's the deeper understanding here is you, you come, you pray over, and you get the best medical attention or care that you can get. 
I think there's an apt possibility of understanding oil to them was a medication. The Good Samaritan. When, when, when the stranger was found wounded and beaten on the side of the road, he poured wine into the wound that would cleanse the alcohol and poured oil to soothe. It had healing properties until he could be bandaged up and get more care. Caring and restoration, this was something that consistent with what Christ would do. He said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, as the sheep would come into the fold back then, the, the, the shepherd would take the sheep one at a time and examine them and inspect them. And if there was a wound on them, they would pour oil into that wound for healing. And so this rubbing, this healing, this massaging. And John MacArthur does a great job talking about the spiritual application, the, the work of a, a shepherd and asking God to work through his Holy Spirit, massaging all over that person to bring healing to their heart, their mind and their soul. Anoint them with oil takes on a deeper meaning than just we're going to grab the oil, wave the wand and pray this little prayer and hope that See, what I'm getting at is I, Christians need to be careful about thinking there's certain things are magical incantations when the text is talking about something far more. Spiritually speaking, the oil could represent the ministry of love and care, spiritual restoration, bringing spiritual strength to soften and, and soothe what has been cracked and what has been broken and what has been worn. Greek word here means to rub all over. So the elders were to anoint them with oil and to pray, to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Pray in the name of the Lord. That takes us back then to John chapter 14, 15, 16, 1 John chapter 5. Whatever we pray for needs to be consistent with his wisdom, consistent with his purpose, consistent with his character, consistent with the will of God. And to the glory of God. Here's where we bring it home for today. We've all had struggles. Everybody here is fighting a battle of some kind. There's always spiritual battles around us. And sometimes if it's not directly with you, it's with somebody else in your life and you're part of that situation. And or you got this thing going on in your life, in your mind, you need healing. And there's times where you can take care of it by just praying on your own. If anyone is in trouble, they should pray. But there's other times you need, you can't whip it on your own. You need to be calling and asking the elders of the church to come and pray over you. And we should be doing that. We've got these spiritually walking wounded on any given occasion. And here's what else James says. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Again, he's talking more about the spiritually weary, the, the beaten down. But it could pertain to physical. Um, the Lord will raise him up if he has sinned. But this is, see, this is where the physical, uh, the spiritual ties in. If he sinned, he will be forgiven. That in the context of this, there is this examine yourself component to it. If you've sinned, you'll be forgiven that when we pray over somebody that somehow confession and, and conversation about everything going on in their life is part of that equation. Confess your sins to each other, it says in the next verse, so that you'll be healed. There's a corporate response then there. It says the, the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Again, this bolsters the idea that the primary healing in this passage is spiritual. And healing in the Bible is most of all about wholeness. But, but there's a pastor's uh, Calvary Chapel in Santa, <laughs> Santa Barbara. He has a practice when he goes to somebody and they want prayer. And they want prayer for healing. He asks them this question. It's worth writing down. He says, is there anything that you need to get right between you and God before I pray for you about this? Is there anything that you need to get right between you and God before I pray for you? Because last week we learned how bitterness can take a stronghold in a person's life. Bitterness can lead to physical ailments. Stress, worry, anxiety can lead to spiritual ailment. Getting involved in pornography 
can have a spiritual stronghold or a foothold in a person's. There's so many things, anger, bitterness, jealousy, you name it, covetousness, greed, lust. These sins can have a, a physical effect on our lives to where we need to confess our sins to one another to find healing in Christ. There's the individual response, the elders response, and now the corporate response. The, the one and others of scriptures confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you'll be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. In this corporate response, there needs to be an openness and a willingness not to bury our sins or try to hide them. Not merely trying to pray over the symptom of the problem without getting to the source. You're not going to find the cure if you're just trying to put a band-aid on how you're feeling. Sin locked up in the heart can produce a myriad of mental, emotional, social, and relational problems. And yes, also physical health problems. Unrepentant, unconfessed sin can fester and make things worse. The rest of the passage, and then he goes and talks about Elijah. Elijah was a human being. So if you want to, the, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now I'm going to tell you about Elijah. By the way, chapter and verse divisions didn't come into play in the Bible till what? The, the 15th, 16th century for the New Testament. So they read this all together as one, one flow, or as we tend to read scripture, and we want to pick apart verse and verse and verse, cut and paste here and there. They were reading in more straight form. Elijah was a human being. Even as we are, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. This is not a good example if you're talking about sickness and physical disease. Uh, it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. You know, the, the only reference we have is this. Elijah, in 17, 1 Kings 17, 1, it says, Elijah... Uh, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years. This is the only account in scripture we have of how exactly Elijah prayed. He prayed that it would not rain. The Old Testament just says he went to Ahab and said it's not going to rain. Then later on, they had the big show off and uh, kind of the showdown with the prophets of Baal. And the fire from heaven that devoured the altar with the, with the bull that was drenched in water and fire licked up all of it. God won. But the battle that was going on back then in Israel was spiritual in nature. The hearts of the people had drifted from God. And they needed God to intervene. And Elijah was that righteous man, that righteous prophet that was willing to stand up to it all. And so for those who say, well... James chapter 5, it's talking about physical healing. No, the, the, the Greek tense and now another, the, the example he gives Elijah, then the context of the whole book. It makes sense to understand this is for the weary, the weak, the beaten down, the downtrodden, the persecuted, those suffering for their faith coming and saying, I'm having trouble pressing on. Will you pray for me? God is most concerned about the spiritual. And then one final example, verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring the person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And some might point back to that Corinthians passage and say, well, this is obviously talking about God putting them to death for their sins as a way of his discipline and judgment. But I believe here the New American Standard Bible has a better interpretation taking into account the entire picture of the Greek where it says this, my brethren, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, when it says my brethren, it's talking to believers straying from the truth and wandering so far away. And that's what this whole book is based on this intense persecution and perseverance in the faith. One turns him back. Let, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. See, this passage has spiritual ramifications, eternal ramifications in that verse. So in conclusion of this message, what are we to do? 
What are we to do as Christians? Pray. Pray should be our first response to every and any situation. The physical, yes. The spiritual, more. When you pray for somebody in the hospital who is, who is, who is on their deathbed or, or battling cancer or somebody's got an illness, an injury, a sickness, absolutely pray that God would heal them. Pray more that they would get to know him more. That if they don't know him already, that they would respond to his offer for salvation. Salvation is so important. And sometimes I get encouraged and discouraged at the same time. Yeah, we want to pray for healing, but we want to pray for spiritual wholeness. That's the bigger, that's the bigger issue. We want to see them not just a few more years on earth. We want to see them forever in eternity. Don't forget to pray about that. Second of all, call on the elders of the church to come and pray. You call and say, I need you guys here now. And we will do it. Right, Dan? Yep. Alan? Kevin? Pastor Rod? We will get there. And we need to do this more. And you need to call on us more. And we will God, we'll, 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 we'll douse you in oil if you want. We'll rub you down. Again, the, the Greek can't apply to physical sickness. And this does make a case. Hey, get the best medical care you can. Uh, this passage is not teaching against using oil as a healing. And God in his grace, he's, I do believe he uses a little dabble, do you? I'm, I'm not using this passage to say that that's what it means. But in faith, sometimes that's why we lay hands, we use oil. But realize that the power is not in the vial of oil. It's not in the... The palm of my hand, the power is in God. That's, and God chooses to work through prayer. So we do all those things. In the name of Jesus, asking thy will be done and, and trusting him no matter what. Seek the best medical care. Confess our sins. That's a good idea in the hospital. Hey, is there anything that you need to get right between you and God before I pray for you? Because a lot of times we want to deal with the sickness issue and not with the sin issue. There's something to that. And trust God with the outcome. My goal this morning is not to discourage anybody with the idea that God doesn't often supernaturally, miraculously heal. Because on a separate note, and this isn't just for physical healing, I believe, this is my theory, I believe every one of us has experienced at least one miracle in our life at one time or another. I want you guys to dig deep. If I were to ask, be asked that question, have you experienced a miracle? It was when I was sleeping on the floor of a van on my way to a debate tournament, and then we were driving all night, and our van driver fell asleep at the wheel, and that thing skidded, 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 went off the road, I, I felt the gravel, I was bracing myself for that thing to roll. And then, by golly, we emerged back onto the highway and slowed down and it came to a stop and everybody was alive and safe. And I'm like, that was a miracle. Okay. God works miracles. And God heals. And most of all, he wants to heal our heart, our minds, our soul, in spiritual renewal, in wholeness, and in salvation. That we might know him more. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you take my words, what, what I've said, and your word, what we've studied. And if this is one that causes each one to go home and study this more, I, I will praise you for it. Thank you. Because we need to get to know you more. We need to get to know your word more so that we're grounded in our faith. And that our faith will be firm. And that instead of getting angry or discouraged, disillusioned or disappointed when things don't go our way or when there's not physical healing or, or, or if somebody says, well, you just didn't have enough faith. No, we believe, God, that you have the power to heal. That you could do it supernaturally, miraculously here and now. Ultimately, though, you will heal in eternity for those who know you, whose heart 
is set on you, who have found their hope in you, who have responded to Christ's offer of salvation. God, thank you so much for what Jesus did on the cross, dying for our sins and inviting us to a relationship with you through him. It's by grace we're saved through faith. May we be a people of prayer. May prayer be our first response, not our, not our last resort. And God, when we are weary and beaten and downtrodden, when we're going through these struggles, spiritually speaking, help us to be more proactive, to call on your people, to call on your church and to call on the elders. And God, we just pray that we would see you move. And in that way, we would see more miracles happen through prayer. Continue to speak even as we leave. For all those with us online today or in the days to come, bless them and may we live in relentless pursuit of you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Can you guys say something? Mm -hmm.